Well, good morning, everybody. I was riding around this week, earlier this week, and I heard a television commercial about a fireworks stand, and they promised us that at their fireworks stand they had professional sales associates that were professional, reliable, and courteous, and they said, come visit us for all your firework needs. I thought, are fireworks a need? Maybe I'm missing something, but apparently they are. I, I joined a group last night reluctantly and watched some fireworks go off. There were a bunch of folks out in the country, and the fireworks were going up in the sky, very grand and glorious, and then for a moment they started going to the crowd uh, toward the kids, which was hilarious, uh, right, Alfie? And then I realized that one of my kids was in that crowd, and so I was very concerned and, and prayed for all of God's children. But everybody was fine, and we had a lot of fun, and there was rain, right? There was just rain yesterday but happy fourth of july to everybody if you have your bibles turn in the book of acts to acts chapter 15 we'll get there in a minute if you've been here or been listening online you know that we're walking through this book we started it after easter we're in no hurry we're just looking at some of the great teaching as a 50 year old pastor i think i'm done with trying to be like that other church or spending a lot of time and effort going to conferences and trying to drink in from people that are different than me or you know whatever I, I just I really just feel this call this clarion call this compelling call to look at acts and see what the first century church was like in all of its glory and grandeur but also with all of its problems so acts chapter 15 we're going to get there in just a minute but never before never before has such an unqualified group of people been given a task so large Jesus after the resurrection has a ragtag group of people, men and women, on a hillside, and he gives them a mission. The mission, take this gospel to the ends of the earth, to make disciples. That's what we want to be about as a church. They had a mission. Like the Blues Brothers, they were on a mission from God. Can't you picture John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd on a mission from God, where Dan Aykroyd does a, a cartwheel all the way down the church aisle? I'm praying for that today, that God will cause someone to raise up and get excited about their mission from God and just do a cartwheel or somersault in here. That's my hope. Not really. But in Acts, what do we see? We see, we've been talking about this, we're not ducking or dodging, we see dreams and visions and miracles and signs and awe and wonder. And as we're drinking it in and learning from the first 30 years of the church, we're asking ourselves, what did God do? Why did he do it? What's he, what's he doing today? What's he still want to do What's for us? And here's what I want to say this morning at the outset and probably repeat it toward the end. What made this movement go were two things. Number one, they were filled with the Spirit. And number two, they were sure about the resurrection. Very interesting. If you dig deeper, you'll see that when they were confronted with questions that they couldn't answer or got in arguments they couldn't win, their response was like, oh yeah, but like, you know, Jesus rose from the dead. When they faced opposition and obstacles that they couldn't overcome, Rome was putting their leaders in prison. Some of their family members were being fed to the lions. They were sure about the resurrection, right? There's a lot of things that, that, were, that are uncertain that we can't explain, that we don't know about. But there's a man, Jesus, the only person in the history of the world who predicted his death and resurrection, and he, he lived it out, and there is strong evidence to support that. And here we're looking at a group of people who witnessed it. They saw it, and they were being his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. But here today, we see a problem. We see that something in the church could really go wrong. And just like the Blues Brothers in that great movie didn't want to be sidetracked from their mission from God, it would be very easy for the church for that to happen, for their mission to be derailed. 
there's a problem and the problem is from within. I think I mentioned this in week four or five that we think of persecution and the problem is from out and what the church has to experience in, in its attacks. Acts 6 shows us Stephen, the first martyr. Many were killed for their faith. And we think, oh, that's what would stop the church. But over and over again in Acts and 1 through 28 and then what pastors and scholars call Acts 29, you know, the rest of the story that we're living in today, when persecution happens, the church, it blossoms and it grows and spreads and increases and multiplies. But problems from within, I'm putting my pastor hat on, my pastor's heart is coming out now, but problems from within can be the most dangerous. Acts chapter 15. Let's go there today. Acts 15, we're going to read the first five verses and pause. We'll do it in sections. Acts 15 and verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they, de they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now, different time, place, culture, okay? But here we're posed, the early church is posed with this question, is faith enough? Don't they, the outsiders, have to become like us, the insiders? I mean, after all, we're the chosen, we're the called, we're the ones that God appointed, we're his people. So if they're going to come join us, they need to be like us. That's a central question. The church faced it then. We can learn from them, can't we? Like, I want to lead us today in pointing to this ancient council of Jerusalem that we're about to read about. But they were posed with this very important central question. Do they need to become like us? I think we're okay that people are coming to Jesus. By the way, isn't that funny? There is a religious people among us, has been in, in every gathering, that just is uncomfortable with the outsiders, doesn't like change, just not sure about how so-and-so and those people could disrupt the status quo. They were unsettled about this, but it wasn't just sociologically, relationally, or whatnot. It was theological. What needs to happen for these people? Do they need to be circumcised? What, what about the law of Moses is important in this scenario? And even though I put away my glasses, let's look at verse 6. One time I was doing this up front, and I, I actually stabbed my eye. And only my wife saw me. Nobody else did. And she was praying for me. And I was, I think I started crying or something to make you think that, no. Verse 6. The apostles, okay, after this central question, remember the question, do they need to be, do the Gentiles need to become Jewish in order to follow Jesus? The apostles and the elders were gathered together, together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, imagine that, a church debating something. Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, always an important word when you're talking circumcision, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. 
And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So here's Peter, and Peter is saying, hey, it's grace. It's grace. This us and them distinction, it's over. Now, you do have the Jewish people. And a lot of American politics is built on this in terms of our foreign policy to this day, 2017. And we could get really deep here, but I want to keep you engaged. But the, the, the Jewish people knew that they were the ones who were called and appointed and chosen by God. But Peter understands there's a new day. And I think Peter has a couple of arguments. If, if you look down in verse 8, he's talking about what God has just recently done. And I think what he's referring to there, I'm pretty sure of it, even though it's not explicitly stated, Peter is going back to Acts 10, and he's thinking of Cornelius. Were you here there? Did you get to listen online? Cornelius, uh, Peter had this vision. Uh, Cornelius is of the Italian cohort. He's a commander of the army. He's one of the, the Navy SEAL elite kind of guys, army ranger guys. He's a Gentile, and God gives him this vision with animals on a blanket. It was the first ever pigs in a blanket story. That comes from the Bible. And here Peter is given this vision of what's clean and what's unclean, and then he realizes... He realizes in his slumberous state, wait, 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 God's not talking about animals. He's not talking about this. He's talking about that. What he, This work that he's doing, what we used to think was unclean, God has made clean. So he points to Cornelius, something very, very recently. And then he also says in these verses, 6 through 12, Peter has another argument, not just Cornelius. He has this argument of like the law, the law of Moses, like we, did, we can't keep it. Our fathers couldn't keep You know who couldn't keep the law of Moses? Moses didn't keep the law of Moses. Ever thought about that? Do you know the story of Moses? He didn't do good keeping the law of Moses. Like, humanity is littered with hypocrites. Like, there are hundreds in the room this morning. There's one speaking right now. Who can keep the law? So to understand this, Let's keep, let's keep reading. We'll get into that in just a little bit more. But So you see Peter with these two arguments, which are, hey, Cornelius, if you're talking about circumcision, if you're talking about ritual stuff, let me tell you what happened. Cornelius, a Gentile of the Italian cohort, the Holy Spirit fell on him. He was saved. He accepted Jesus. That's all he needs. There was no ritual. There was no circumcision, no blood, no gore, right? No men waiting outside in the hallway for a new member class, right? This was just one of those, hey, Jesus, Jesus was doing a work. The Holy Spirit fell. It's grace. It's faith. I'm, good, I'm telling you, this new work that God is doing. Paul and Barnabas, same thing. They're recounting the stories. They're traveling. They went some 500 miles already at this point on the first missionary journey. And they're seeing people that aren't Jews except Jesus. Very fascinating. Now, James speaks up in verse 13. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known 
from old. Here is James. And James has the same conclusion after much debate, but it's a different argument. It's different from what Peter has laid down. It's different from Paul and Barnabas. And James is citing the prophets. He's going back to the Old Testament. Now, Peter did that in his sermons in Acts chapter 4. He's letting people see the new covenant. How relationship has now replaced rules. And how the spirit of the law is replacing the letter of the law. And how it, the law itself is so very limited. And James is quoting, if you, if you care to know, he's quoting from the prophets Jeremiah and from Amos. And he says what he says. And then, verses 19 to 29, we're going to go on a stretch. And you're going to say this is kind of goofy and odd and arbitrary. But stay with me. Verse 19, therefore my judgment. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. That's our verse of the day. That's it, verse 19. A lot of translations, if you have an open Bible, you may see this. Hey, let's not make it difficult for the Gentiles to turn to God. Like, let's not make it difficult for people. Hey, church, you hear me? Let's not make it difficult for people to come to Jesus. Because that's the only message that matters. Therefore, my judgment, I'm going to read it again, is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, verse 20, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Far from ancient generation, for, for from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. I love unity. Do you like unity? It's a place for debate. There's a place to discern. There's a place to say, hey, what really matters? I mean, you have to do that. Like, pray for your leaders. Pray for churches, this church and the church. But there was this agreement, and the agreement with the whole church, to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia and greetings, since we have heard from that same persons have gone out from, uh, from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements." That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Peace out. Now, strange, goofy, odd, arbitrary. It seems confusing. It seems, it's like he said, okay, just the grace and faith. Just that's it. Just faith in the grace of God. But here's a couple of things. Sexual immorality and strangling animals to death. It just seems a little goofy. Now, to understand this, and you won't fully understand it today, but I want to give you a few things to understand this word law. There are, in the Old, in the Old Testament, there's a delineation between three different types of law. The first is civil law. The second, if you're a note taker, is ceremonial law. And then the third is moral law. This is really important to understand. The 
civil law, just think there, think crime and punishment. Or maybe before crime and punishment, think law and order. Law and order is a, it's a funny thing. You know, there are three new traffic laws in the state of Mississippi about, about to be enacted. One of them is, it's, it's soon to be, it's going to be illegal to ride in the back of a pickup truck. Now, I'm a child of the 70s. If you would have told me that in the 70s, man, I would, have been, I would have risen up. I would have had posters and placards and protesters. I would have been throwing rocks and bottles, right? I mean, that's what we did. When I grew up and where I grew up, we rode in the back of a pickup truck. It's soon about to be illegal. I'm not taking a stand on that anymore, so don't email me. But laws are just funny, right? There's, there's law and order, and there's crime and punishment. What's going to happen to you six months from now if you've got some folks riding in the back of your pickup truck, right? There's crime and there's punishment. There were civil laws for this nation of Israel. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, which at the time, it seems brutal to us today, but at, t- at the time, it was an advancement. Because back in those days, before that law was given, uh, someone would steal someone's cow, and then someone would murder somebody's wife. And isn't that what revenge does? When someone does you wrong, you don't choose an equal mode, do you? You do something different, and anger escalates. Then when Jesus came... He said in Matthew 5, 17, I didn't come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill it. Very important distinction. So he says, hey, you have heard that it's been said, do not murder. But I'm saying to you, and he, he enhances, and he makes it this more beautiful and understandable law. But in this, this civil law, there's a, there's a ceremonial law. Man, just read Deuteronomy. Read, read Leviticus. We've done that recently in the small group that, that my wife and I lead. I mean, there's some stuff in there, right? You read Leviticus, and it's like there's the burn offering and the grain offering and the peace offering and the sin offering and the guilt offering. There's all these offerings. There's these ceremonies, and it has to do with clean and unclean. In fact, if you're a note taker, when you wrote civil and you wrote law and order or crime and punishment or, or, or next to the word ceremonial, write clean and unclean. And there was this nation of Israel that had a lot of rules. Do you know how many they had? 613. 613. That's a little too much, right, parents, to put on your child's lunchbox before they leave for school? That's a little too many laws to send in a text to remind someone to have a good day and to love God and hate sin. 613. But these laws and these rules were added. But lastly, beyond civil and ceremonial, there's moral laws. And the moral laws just write the phrase, Ten Commandments, which a lot of us know by heart. So when Jesus comes, and there's precursors, there's hints, there's progress all along the way. When Jesus comes, he's doing away with civil and ceremonial law. You ever had a a non-Christian, a skeptic, say to you, well, you pick and choose. Like you Christians, you throw your morality your sexual morality on us you quote leviticus about who god hates and what god doesn't like you know you're in our bedrooms but you leave all the dietary stuff and the stuff about fabrics and women's cycle you leave all that stuff out of it you pick and you choose but listen civil law and ceremonial law was time bound it's done away with moral law it exists and it continues to exist because god hasn't changed his mind about murder and lying and stuff now what does the moral law do for you this group of pharisees stood up and they thought really honestly even though their word said something differently they thought man look at how righteous we are look at how dutifully we keep all the commandments the giving and the alms and the prayers we're structured we do them all almost to the point of perfection 
But what, is the, what does the moral law do for you? It's a weight that you cannot bear. You can't keep the law. And that's what we're seeing here. Hey, our, I couldn't. You can't. Our fathers, our mothers, they couldn't keep the law. How are you doing with the law? How is your morality? How are you doing in earning God's favor and approval? Do you lie? I really think you probably ought to nod your head like this, right? If, if you don't, you're probably lying right now. But do you, do you lie? I mean, you know, you know, I think we do. Do you ever fudge the numbers and cook the books? Do you ever project something, an image that's not really true? Do you ever exaggerate? Do you ever distort something? I mean, I, seriously, I think we do have a room full of, of liars. Why? Because we lie. Now, I'll tell you, having Jesus in my heart has radically changed that in my own life. But man, the first sin, what did they do? They ran and they hid, and that's in every heart. How are you doing with lying? What about coveting? How's your heart? Last week, we talked about the heart. We put up Proverbs 14.30 that says, A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. It is lethal when you long for someone else's life. You've got friends, and they're at their beach condo or their mountain bungalow, and you're here with me today, right? But you're happier because you're here with me. Just, just nod and make me feel right. We're happier. They're not happier. We're not spending money. They are, right? They got their, they're coming back with their souvenir sunburn and maxed out credit card bills, right? But we're here happy together. How are you doing with that? How are you doing with murder? I've never murdered, but I sometimes struggle with the urge to murder. <laughs> I was in conflict not too long ago. I'd love to tell you it was years ago. It was just, just a few weeks ago and I had a dream. I had a dream they were strapped to a chair and I was praying that God would allow me to do a karate chop to their throat. Uh, specifically, the prayer was 17 times. I was asking, can, God, can I chop them at the throat 17 times? Just a good, solid karate chop. Not to the point of death, right? Because I don't murder. I wouldn't murder. But I do have the urge at times to, to inflict great pain. How are you doing with that? I've never cheated on my wife, but I have to guard my eyes. How about you? How are you doing in the morality department? The law was not designed to save us. The law was designed to show us that we need to be saved. It's why Paul would say in a New Testament epistle that the, the law is like a schoolmaster. In other translations, it's a tutor. What does a tutor do? Anybody know? Any of you done poorly enough in school, right? You know that a tutor does what? A tutor meets you at the point of where you're at, takes you to another place. A tutor is necessary for a time, but then no longer needed. The law was a tutor it was a schoolmaster necessary but no longer needed because we have Jesus that's the story the new story the new covenant we have Jesus we have a savior and so this question do they need to become like us is answered how no God's doing this work and you know what it's not just some new thing that God thought up it's been part of this plan from the beginning remember when God saw a man named Abram and renamed him Abraham. And he said, I'm going to bless you, but it's not just to hold on to that blessing. It's to be a blessing to all the nations. And here we see a great move toward every tongue, every tribe, every nation. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. That's what unites us, but it's his grace. So that question, do they have to become like us? No. What matters is faith and grace in that. There's another important question here. 
And this is where as a church we can really get it wrong in our regular practice. The second question is, okay, if they don't have to become like us, then how do we fellowship with each other? If they're different than we are, how do we sit at the table? That's important, isn't it? That's a really important question. Think about the last time. I hope it's true in your life. I hope you can think back to something very recent and very particular. But think of the last time you sat around a table and there was good food. You weren't alone. You weren't with someone you didn't enjoy. Just the opposite. Good food, good drink. You know what I'm saying? Good drink. And, and, and we'll get there in a second. And, and, and you had good drink and good food and laughter and you were recounting some things in the past, and you were projecting some things for the future with excitement and anticipation. You were savoring the moment, and you lingered. Any of you linger over meals? I mean, it's hard, right, when you're throwing a Pop-Tart in your mouth early in the morning and taking Wendy's drive-through, doing the four-for-four Wendy's drive-through, you know? I mean, are you at the table? Think of the last time you've been at the table, and you didn't want to get up because it was so enjoyable. That only happens when you enjoy the people you're with. And you, to enjoy the people that you're with, you have to have something in common. How do we fellowship? If they're not going to adopt our customs and our habits and our rituals and everything about us, then how are they going to fellowship with us? Now, for us today, I know you're going to leave a lot of questions, but you're going to study it. You're going to study it this week, and you may send me an email with, with any of your questions. And I'll be happy to tackle them as best I can or send you to a link. That's what I do when I'm in a hurry. I just send you to a link. But listen, this, this idea of having something in common and their differences is really important. And this is where unity breaks down, okay? Habits, rituals, customs, people that are different from us. Circumcision is not our thing today, praise God. It's, it's not our thing. But what is our thing? Politics? Mm-hmm. Tattoos. I came in the back. Or I call it, y'all call it the front. I came in the back way right as service was starting. Nick was up front. Molly was about to lead us. And I walked by somebody. I just nudged him during the song. And I said, hey, no tattoos in this church. Thankfully, he knows me. And he knows I was joking. Some of you are like, I don't think it's funny, preacher. Take a stand. Take a stand against tattoos. But that is a subject that can divide us. Today's message is brought to you by the Electric Dagger in Fondren, located <laughs> in Fondren Corner. Tattoos can divide us. Politics, I don't have to say anything, politics has deeply divided us. Here's the big one, you ready? You know it, alcohol. Now Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 1 says that wine is a mocker, beer is a brawler. Those who are led astray by them are not wise. Can I get an amen? Don't you love that? That's right in the Bible. Beer is a brawler. Like you, some of you, you may have seen that this weekend, right? Beer is a, wine is a mocker. When you're led astray, you're not wise. What's, what's not wise person is a foolish person. You're a fool if you give yourself over to drink, to strong drink. New York Times article a few months ago, one in six people who pick up alcohol end up developing a big problem. One in 10 Americans grew up in a home where there was alcohol abuse. And if you pastor, that's really sad. That's not just a, a statistic. Or if you've been touched by that, that's not a stat. That's a heart tug. That's pain and suffering. 
100,000 deaths last year were alcohol-related. I've said this before. I'm going to say it again today. If you're here today and someone has said to you in your circle, and they have said to you, I think you have a drinking problem, I want to lovingly tell you, you have a drinking problem. And in love, I'm telling you to get help. But listen, just because something is abused doesn't mean that it should be abolished. We abuse sex, but we don't abolish it. Words are abused, but we don't go silent. 100,000 deaths last year, alcohol-related in the U.S., 300,000 obesity-related deaths in the U.S. But no one wants to outlaw desserts. They're building Mexican restaurants like once a week around here, right? Like no, one is, no one's talking about that. That's no deep concern. We, we never address gluttony or food problems in the church. Never do. So maybe you're among us. And like me, I'm just going to put it out there, like me, you enjoy a good drink every now and then. Maybe you're like my wife and you like a glass of wine. Can I tell you that's a very good thing? Now, people get creative exegetically in Scripture and try to teach something else and add to it, but they're wrong. You can enjoy that, and it can be a gift from God. We can argue all day, uh, I'm right, about fermented and non-fermented and what about Jesus and what Paul told Timothy or whatever, you know what I'm saying? But it's just, it's just a good thing and it's a gift. But now listen, you maybe, maybe like Susan and I, you can enjoy a glass of wine or you can drink a beer or you like some bourbon on ice. And for you, it's a good thing. You can drink a glass and enjoy everything. And it can, you can worship and do good things. But you have a brother who a glass turns to two glasses and two glasses turns to three glasses, and three glasses turns to a bottle, and the next thing you know, your brother is out of town getting a tattoo. <laughs> Which brings us back to that subject. So what do we do? Here's what religious people do. Religious people say, let's take a side and make it a law. Take a side and make it a law. You want to join us? You want to join our church? Membership covenant? Here, sign here about alcohol. Sign this right here on alcohol. We... We make a law, take a side and make a law. But here's, here's what Scripture does. Scripture says it's a matter of conscience. And here's what's great about this. The, the gross, odd part in here is actually a beautiful thing if you study it. Because what you see here is this idea of freedom. We only need Jesus. Y'all, it's faith in His grace. But there are times, so many times, where we show deference where we gladly lay down our rights for the good of other people. We have to walk that out together. When Fondren Church, two and a half, almost three years old, came to Woodland Hills to ensure our permanent home, we no longer at communion took wine. We came here and we took juice. We didn't want to offend the good people of Woodland Hills Baptist Church. And we wanted the building. There are times when you, motives are always mixed, right? There, there are times when you lay down, you gladly lay down your rights for the good of other people. In my lifetime, I have literally seen churches argue over the color of carpet. I have seen Christian folks, religious people, 
talk about, discuss, and debate whether you should have drums in worship, whether women should wear pants in church. Now we've escalated that to yoga pants, right? I have received emails here about the art on this beautiful stained glass. I was at McDade's a couple of years ago and I had someone confront me on a sin issue in my life in a supermarket checkout line and said that I was committing a sin by not having a pulpit. No pulpit in a church means no God in the church. He told me that to my face and I told them, man, I'm glad Jesus had 12 friends to carry around a wooden pulpit all around Galilee. <laughs> and with a smile, I walked out. It is in our hearts, it is in our hearts to add to the commandments. And there are things that we need to realize, there are a matter of conscience. And for us to live together well, it's really, really important. I want to round toward home with three big ideas and then three choices we have. The first idea is this, Jesus wanted his followers united around the mission of love, not divided over a list of rules. Now, you Bible people, some of you know it really well. And when Peter's doing his thing here, you can hear the words of Jesus when he's like, man, we couldn't keep the law. My fathers couldn't. We can't. We can't do this. It's just a waste. We can't do it. Jesus, in Matthew 23, he confronts the Pharisees, and he gives them seven woes. That'd be a good sermon series one time. He gives seven woes, and one of the woes is, hey, you Pharisees, you religious people, you're putting a burden on people that they can't bear. They're striving to be good enough to earn God's favor, and it's not what they do, it's what Jesus has done. That's the gospel. And Peter's hearkening back to what Jesus said. And Jesus prayed in John 17 that we would be one. He offers no prayers about auditoriums versus sanctuaries, pulpits or podiums versus whatever. He offers no advice or thoughts or suggestions on traditional versus contemporary. He says, I want you to be one. I want you to be one. I want you to be united around this mission of love. Secondly, people who get grace don't always give grace to others. I'll never forget being a teenager. It shaped my life. I sat in this church, another church I sat comparable to right over here. And and I remember remember a 14-year-old young lady. She got pregnant. And her family were trying so hard for people not to know. And I know that they were considering options from abortion to getting out of town. And there was this Sunday when they walked down the aisle. She could no longer hide the baby bump. And this 14-year-old girl walks down the aisle. Which is such a Jesus thing, isn't it? Isn't that why we're here? But the looks, the glances, the scorn, and the judgment. People who get grace don't always give grace to others. How much space do we have? How much space? Three, there are people who claim to love God, but they don't love people. If you love God, you'll love people, including people you disagree with. How important is that? I think if the church is committing a sin, it's this one right here. It's this. What unites a people, do you know? If I were to say in this 
this sanctuary today, if I were to say stand up if you've ever been to Hawaii, that'd be cool. A few of you would have an opportunity to boast. You'd stand up. If I said stand up if you drive a Toyota Tundra, I bet a handful of you would be able to stand up. If I said Toyota Land Cruiser, Will Sanders would stand up. They have a cult here. You know about the Toyota Land Cruiser Club? It's like a cult happening right before us. If I said to you, if you eat Twinkies, stand up. What does that do for us? That's just random and really nothing. It's mildly interesting at best. But if I said stand up today, if you've lost a loved one to cancer, or you're in a battle with cancer, what, what does that do to us? What, what, what feeling is in the room then? Are you with me? See, suffering unites the people. Suffering unites the people. Paul would later say in Philippians chapter 2, if we have this mind of Christ, if there's encouragement in, in love and in the spirit, we're to be of the same mind. And he would talk later in Philippians 3 about sharing in the sufferings of Jesus. And when we suffer, because pain is the universal human language, and if we were to have some of you stand up who've experienced cancer or lost a loved one, it'd be heavy in this room, wouldn't it? And our hearts would go towards somebody. We're uniting in our, united in our suffering and we're united in our sin. For all of sin, not some of sin, not they have sinned, not a certain people group, but all, all have sinned. So three questions that confront us as a church. Being mindful. In fact, if you have a phone, I really don't like when you use it during church, but that's not my business. But if you have a phone, take it out. You give permission. Take it out and take a picture of this. But there are three options for us in light of Acts 15, 19. Are we going to make it difficult for people to come to Jesus? Are we? If we have a passion, are we going to have a passion for outsiders or are we going to pacify insiders? Now, how do we do that? I thought of three things, clicks, cliches, facades. Three words that are really hard to spell. Bam, bam, bam. Should have had them on the screen. Clicks. A click is when it's just you, right? It's hard to get in. People come and they, it's just hard. It's just difficult. And I want to encourage you. I'm glad we have a community group pastor of the quality and character of Nick Crawford who's leading our church to, yes, form deep friendships, but to look for outsiders and to not make it difficult for people to get in a group and share life together. But I know this, and God, he pushes me. But are you just hanging around the same two or three or four people? Who do you speak to when you come to church? Clicks, cliches insider jargon and language that people don't understand a facade of self-righteousness it's why today like the last few sundays we're gonna we're gonna call you to the altar today to to seek god and to be prayed for either to kneel or to to be with a pastor to be prayed for because you need it because there's something that you need to see god do in your life but also it's a testimony that we as a church are messed up people we are here today because we're messed up and we want to move out of our darkness and into the light. 
Do we have a passion for outsiders or do we just simply want to pacify insiders? It'd be easy for me to want to pacify insiders. You know, I'm the pastor. So when people write to me, outsiders don't write to me, you write to me. And I really want you to be happy. It's no secret. Why don't I say it? I'd love for you to be a part of this church. I'd love for you to invest in this church. I'd like you to join us to help make this church go. And so there's a big part of me that wants to make you happy. But we can't design our church with this mindset of babysitting spoiled Christians. So we want to push because there's a mission. There's a mission that's important. And it's always welcoming outsiders. Do we advance the mission or do we persevere the tradition? You can go into some churches and it's sad because there are no young people. And there's some people who have been sitting in their seats since the Revolutionary War. They're as old as Methuselah. If they're in their 40s, they're in the youth group. And they've been afraid to change. And don't ever tell them this but they love their traditions more than their grandkids, apparently. Pray for us. Be a part of this if God's calling you. But some of you are dialed in and you see what we're doing here. We're investing in the next generation. We're sowing seeds in the future. And we want to create a place where outsiders feel welcome. And we don't hold on to any sacred cows that Jesus doesn't want us to hold on to. The question, is our message conform or be transformed? Man, I love, love some variety. You know who loves variety more than me, God? Look around the room. You see some different folks. Not enough. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago as we preached about the gospel and racism. And one of the ways I want to lead our church in helping us not make it difficult for people to come to Jesus is creating a place where people don't have to capitulate to a dominant white culture. To where we can be open welcoming and loving and that we can learn the ultimate message is not sit down shut up soak it up be like us it's be transformed from the inside it's what he wants us to do let's be a church where we don't make it difficult for people to come to jesus all these rules look god let me say god doesn't change his mind about morality but he wants to change your heart. And a heart that's being transformed, it changes. Some of you, you know that story. That's my prayer for us today.